0: Hello, everyone. Before we get into today's podcast, I wanted to let you know about the upcoming QCon Software Development Conference. We'll be back online with QCon Plus May 10th to 20th. Join the world's most innovative senior software engineers across multiple domains online as they share their real-world implementation of emerging trends and practices. You can learn more about the events at qconferences.com, and we hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. I'm Daniel Bryant, news manager here at InfoQ and product architect at Datawire, and I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Anna Medina, senior chaos engineer at Gremlin. Anna has been running a series of online workshops focused on chaos engineering for quite some time now, and she is a frequent contributor to online discussions about how to run game days and resilience fire drills within organisations. I was keen to hear about her recent learnings in this space and also understand how she's adapted the training in relation to the global pandemic and everyone being distributed and often working at home or not in their office. I've also seen that Anna and the Gremlin team have recently been discussing the need to understand and verify the current health of the system before running chaos experiments, and so I was keen to dive into this topic in more depth and understand both the technical and the social aspects to this. Hello Anna, and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me, Daniel. I'm very excited to be here today. Awesome. I think the
0: last time you and I caught up was in New York last year. Casey Rosenthal put together Chaos Community Days. I think a lot has happened in the domain of chaos engineering since that date. I know you've been in lots of exciting stuff in Gremlin. So what's been happening in the last year or so? What uh, exciting stuff have you been working on?
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely been a really long time since we last spoke. So very excited to be catching up today. We've been working on a lot. I mean, me, myself, like I've been diving down into doing more cloud native chaos engineering, focusing on Kubernetes. I gave a keynote at KubeCon talking about some of the most common failures around Kubernetes, which that was something that I didn't really have in my goals. So doing it felt like a huge accomplishment. And apart from that, been working on trying to advance like training for chaos engineering. So, I've been putting together like a lot of on-hand practices for folks to learn the fundamentals of chaos engineering, for them to actually start implementing these practices in their organizations, and for them to be interactive. And of course, as the pandemic kind of took over, that became something that like I focused on very much and at gremlin we've kind of been focusing on closing like the feedback loop of chaos engineering for folks to have a little bit more understanding of what their chaos engineering experiments are meaning within the platform and one of the other main things that we had also just recently launched is something known as uh, status checks health checks a way to actually kind of take the temperature of your system prior to injecting that failure. So it's very much that safe guardrail that a lot of our enterprise customers, specifically the finance, Fortune 500, those were the ones that really needed that safe guardrail for their team to start automation in production and such.
0: Very interesting, Anna. Something I want to pick up on there, you said you mentioned sort of taking the temperature. That sounds super interesting. So is that like a dynamic thing or is it like a one-off, you know, my system is ready for chaos engineering or is it a continual thing you'd be running?
1: So right now, the way that we have status checks laid out is that you create a scenario and a scenario is various different steps within a chaos engineering experiment. So we're seeing that folks are starting out by taking that temperature check of their system. Are there any incidents running? How is this service level metric doing? And another one, it could be very much, is my website up? Is there like checking a calendar? Like, We launched status check with partners like Datadog, Relic, and PagerDuty that are like the perfect components that a lot of companies are using. But we also allow for any API endpoint to actually be added so you can create your own. So it could actually be like you check your own calendar. Is there a game day going on that we shouldn't be like running more experiments on? But I think for the purpose of production where you're just like really not trying to cause more harm into your system, and it goes into that big picture of chaos engineering. It's always thoughtful. It's always planned. You want to make sure that you're not going to cause a larger outage. You're not going to page someone when they're already dealing with another incident. So having those extra guardrails is really important. So we have it laid out that you add a status check and then you can continue adding attacks and they can be different types of like a resource attack, a network attack and such. And then you can do another status check. So you can literally be launching status checks and attacks right next to each other and maybe down the line there will be some continuous status check that would allow for you to know how like your system is actually doing throughout the entire chaos engineering experiment.
0: So is it more of a ops thing more of an SRE thing more of a developer thing what typically who would be involved I guess in defining the health checks status checks?
1: I think we have that conversation of like shifting left where we want those devs to be aware of what is really important for them to not cause more harm into their systems. So if devs have access to this tool, we hope that they're also setting up status checks, but we also have seen a lot where the SRE teams are actually the ones that are owning chaos engineering, implementing those practices and building up the dev teams. So as they're already putting the experiments themselves into the platform, they're teaching the rest of their team that this is actually something that they can use. So I think a lot of it is kind of how it's adopted at that organization.
0: Yeah, very nice. Very nice. And I'm guessing this goes hand in hand with some of the more organizational factors as well. Sort of the status checks almost gets you to think about what should I be watching and what should I be alert for? Not only like a technical level, but also something you said, which is quite nice there is, you know, look at a calendar, maybe, maybe there's like a really important day today, or maybe there's a, Game day running already. So, is it a quite a nice tool these status checks for getting folks to think about what's good and bad?
1: Yeah, we know that these are complex systems. There's so many different things that are changing, from like not only like the code we're deploying to them, but our users and like current news. Like there's a pandemic going out and you have a retail store and all the stores are shutting down, you won't necessarily have a top on mind in that moment unless like, you're obsessory that there's going to be a heavy load on your site like more than usual. So by having like those contexts that are missing from a lot of those mental models, having the tools kind of help you figure them out, it's just like that extra guardrail that you need, that crutch that you didn't know That you need it so that you actually don't end up stumbling down the line.
0: Yeah, very nice. Very nice. You mentioned a few times about the pandemic. Unfortunately, we've all got to deal with the strange times we're living in now. I was keen to get your insight onto how this has impacted folks dealing with failures, because you know many companies I've worked at, the disaster recovery was all assuming we were going to be on site. You know, if stuff happened, we'd all kind of rush towards. Yeah, we'd obviously maybe get on a conference call first off, but then we all you know there'd be physically folks in the data center, for example. How do you think the pandemic has affected people's ability to deal with the inevitable failures that happen in IT?
1: I think it made a clear definition of those folks that like were ready to handle high traffic and had actually been preparing for it, had an experienced team, had a resilient infrastructure. And then we had those that didn't really prioritize reliability, resilience within their organizations that they end up kind of stumbling a bit. And with that, it's very much of like, For some organizations, they were starting to prepare for their peak traffics that were about to come. So the pandemic just kind of started verifying at a nice, like slow rate curve that things were working really well. And then, of course, as like things continue being shut down, they start seeing a higher load of traffic and they're able to handle it well. And then now when their high traffics are about to be here, it's like they feel really comfortable. But I think you mentioned that like really strong point where like all of our teams are distributed and maybe if we were working on site, like we were already at the data center, so we were easily able to go there. If the data center caught on fire, it wasn't that hard to be like, okay, we're going to drive to the data center as a team. We'll figure it out. Like now you have other things to think about if you actually need to troubleshoot something like that. But with that, we have everyone completely distributed. distributed and like gremlin has been remote first culture so we didn't really have an issue transitioning when the pandemic hit which was actually really interesting because i see friends freaking out and i'm like this is just a regular day for me except i actually don't have an office to go to i'm like for sure staying home i'm not going on to the airport i'm not in a different city like i'm just home for a really long time but for those folks that their teams have never been distributed like you have to start building that trust. You have to start building those relationships with those folks, like whether it's the devs and the ops folks, whether it's the SRE team, like actually engaging more with the dev teams. We see that those things were still silos to an extent. So having that extra communication has been helpful. But one of the things that I've like touched upon with a lot of our prospects and customers is very much that chaos engineering kind of like actually helps you build those relationships, allows you to do fire drills to prepare for incidents that could happen. And for you to actually go through your runbooks, make sure that everyone has access to the right tooling, and maybe even understanding that everyone's going to be working different times because of parenting duties or doctor's appointments and things like that. So you start, realizing that things are happening more ad hoc, and you need to enable your individual contributors in every single team to be successful on their own, and at the same time, have the right path of escalation, or the right path to continue doing their searching for more tooling, more observability, or anything that's needed.
0: How can folks run game days from home now, I guess, like some of them? like Is it viable to run game days as you're fully distributed? And if so, have you got any tips for folks that might have always done their testing kind of, you know, in the office and now suddenly they're pushed out all remote?
1: Yeah, Gremlin has always been putting out some resources on game days. We actually haven't fully like fleshed out like that remote game day like run book, you would say, I think I'm going to go pitch it to my team that that actually might be like a fun one, because it's true. You always kind of talked about game days, chaos days, or anything like this, as this on-site experience that you would have like, at least four or five folks in the room, but you also want to make sure you have like your managers, an intern, possibly a VP for like the right folks to be there for all those conversations to have, One, like the architecture diagrams and understanding of your systems, what tools there are, past incidents, like all this knowledge that we know is never really documented and people are holding in their heads. You want those conversations in the room. So, as we only have remote, we only have virtual tools, I think it's possible to run a really successful game day virtually. I mean, I know a little bit of how to do it because I mentioned that I've been working on like the workshops and the training. So there are a lot of collaboration tools. And like one of the things that could kind of be done is like setting up a Zoom call, having like a Google Doc or like a collaboration that would actually lay out what is going to happen that game day. And maybe you actually break it up into different like meetings where you have your pre-planning process and then you actually have like that call right before just to make sure everyone's on track. And then when the day of the game day actually comes, everyone's already on the same page. Whether you have only dedicated one hour, you have dedicated four hours to run some possible chaos engineer experiments, you have already laid out all the foundational work that sometimes it's easier to do in person because you're not talking over one another. So it's like you've already broken that off from the main event. So you've like really prepared well for it. And then when the game day comes, one of the ways that it kind of just works best is if you have signed roles to folks, so it's going to be like, Sally, you're going to be the commander. You're in charge of owning this exercise. Someone is going to be taking notes. Someone is going to be observing through the observability tools. Someone is actually going to test being that user into whatever system you're testing. So as folks have all these rules assigned, you get to focus on just that one piece of the game day puzzle, and that allows you to be a lot more successful. And we've been trying to incorporate that culture within like the workshop that Gremlin runs, these boot camps are a place for folks to come together like two, three, four hours to learn the fundamentals of chaos engineering. And then we transition to an hour of like hands-on experiments. And in the hands-on component, like I bring up a cloud infrastructure, which is usually Kubernetes. We put in monitoring, observability tools, and then we have a microservice demo environment. And we tell folks, you're going to be put together in a group of four There's four roles. Decide amongst yourself what you want to do. And as we go through the exercise, we tell every single role what they need to be doing. Like you need to log into this tool. You need to look here. And by guiding them, that has actually like helped them just focus on one thing. Of course, like we still have to figure out a lot of the tooling component. But one of the nice things that we were able to leverage is that the platforms like zoom allow you to have breakout rooms that you can actually put folks into groups of four, like assign them, with your own intent or you can let zoom do this randomly so it would be an interesting way to see like small game days kind of get launched in that way within an organization and at gremlin we actually transitioned a bit of the way that we were doing some of our game days like jason e the director of advocacy came on board he had been doing chaos engineering also a data dog and when we've been working together on things to make gremlin more reliable We have a few projects in mind, but we've been actually, instead of looking at doing big game days within the organization, we've been doing small little game days within every engineering team with other folks of the organization also coming on board for them to understand more about how it's going. And it's like, we have to practice what we preach. So we're also trying to figure out new ways that we can push that needle forward.
0: Awesome. I wanted to put a a couple of things you said there. And I think it's the training for these things is really, really important. In my experience with some of the ops stuff, I've had a hard time getting buy-in from, say, an architect persona. Everyone has that clear value in the organization. But some of the interactions I've had with people that sort of identify as an architect, they're like, I didn't need to worry about the ops stuff. I don't need to worry about the failures. Yeah. Is that something you've seen or And how do you encourage folks that perhaps are more traditional architects into this learning experience?
1: It's interesting because I've had a lot of architects come through my workshops and you feel confident in your architecture diagrams. You don't want anyone to tell you that they're wrong. And one of like the first exercise that we put together is like, let's actually test those critical dependencies. What is a critical path of your application that you can actually create a hypothesis where your application is going to be super usable. The product is going to have like degrades happen where the user is able to go through the steady state flow for the critical path without any issues. And when we see that, we provide them architecture diagram that they didn't even create. And they feel super comfortable because it's like, that's an architecture diagram. I trust it. I believe it. And then we're like, let's go actually test what those critical dependencies are. You look at it, you think that if the ad service goes down or like your caching layer goes down, your application is going to be okay. And when you inject that failure in order to block the traffic of that service, of that container, and you see your entire application completely break, it's like, oh, that architecture diagram may have not been accurate in this moment. So that is one way to kind of like put it in front of their face, like let's run this in a controlled way and actually show you that there might be some things that your mental model of your work is really not what's actually happening in real life. And with that, like for ops and SRE, it's like there's various layers to it where you automatically think that after you set up your dashboards or your monitoring observability, everything is going to work. And by buying this tooling without doing any training or setting up, you're still like not ensuring that things have been set up properly. So you want to go and like verify that monitoring. The same thing with like runbooks and like any incident support that your team has, like You create them. You hope that they're going to be the right tools for when your team really needs it. But when that moment strikes and your team has to go through this flow and they realize that it's not working, that's really expensive. So when we talk about bringing in chaos engineering really early, it's very much about having those fire drills, having those teams practice the disaster recovery process practice what it's like to be someone that manages an incident that actually has to escalate and things like that like you really don't get those practices and like in my talks I kind of always joke around it's like when you got put on call like raise your hand if you just got thrown a pager and got told you're going to be successful and it's like that's really not training whatsoever
0: so if we would take a step back and try and understand where to perhaps attack our system or experiment with our system Have you got any guidance for folks? Because I've been doing some work recently around threat modeling. So sort of there's nice books and there's plenty of literature around how to kind of build this mental model of systems and how to look for potential security vulnerabilities. Is there anything kind of analogous or something similar for how to approach chaos experiments?
1: Yeah, there's a little bit of that. I think like two of the starting points that I recommend always the most, it's like, Testing those like tier zero tier one services like you really don't want to go for what's like known as the low hanging fruit like working on systems that don't really have a business impact or don't really have users, whether it's internal or external, like that's not really going to give you that return and investment. Like you're putting in a lot of time and planning and time and execution of chaos engineering. So you want to make sure that the time that you're putting in is going to be valuable. So by focusing on those like tier zero, tier one services, you're going to focus on something that can actually be really valuable for your team and organization. And then the other way that we tell folks to think about when they're thinking about where to focus with their chaos engineering, it's like, let's actually look at your past incidents. You know that you suffered a lot of these failures. You know that you wrote them up, hopefully in a really blameless way. And after you've written them up, you put together some action items, you put your tickets, you put them somewhere in the logs of things that you want to get done. Maybe your engineering team was super proactive and actually got all those tickets closed out. That actually doesn't usually happen. But let's say your team actually did fill out all those tickets, got them closed, put in those patches via code and processes. How do you actually go verify that if the conditions of your incident were to happen again, your system is actually resilient? you don't. And that's actually a really, really good place for folks to start practicing chaos engineering of we suffered this incident in the last few months. Let's actually make sure that we have learned from them And that we are now going to be in a better place due to it. Like, let's actually get an investment from the downtime that our company suffered. The other note from learning from incidents is that I think it goes a step above just learning from your own organization. There's huge communities out there that are talking about incidents are happening in the platforms that we all like touch. So it can be from like listening in to podcasts that talk about like our systems failures, Or like if we look at like learning from incidents from like Nora Jones and some other folks in like resilience engineering, it's like we have amazing write-ups of what happens when complex systems actually show that they're really complex and your team doesn't know that. And we have an entire GitHub repo that talks about other postmortems of like less in-depth analysis of those incidents.
0: Yes, I chatted to Nora a few weeks ago on the podcast, and she was very much emphasizing that we're dealing with socio-technical systems. And she was also discussing the differences and similarities between chaos engineering and resilience engineering.
1: And when that note, is very much of like chaos engineering is just a subset of resilience engineering in a way, where you still are focusing on making these complex systems really, really resilient. But chaos engineering currently just focuses on the software space. But within the software space, you focus on the people, the processes, the code that's there, the infrastructure. So we only focus on technology in a way as of right now. And with resilience engineering, we have this entire field that's not just software. We talk about the medical field. We talk about aviation. So it goes a little bit above that.
0: Yeah, that's nice. I think it's something that I've definitely seen in my career and guilty as charged for sure. We don't always learn from other fields and there's actually many other interesting sources of information out there, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think is where we talk about like in our world where there's silos within our teams in the organization. And when we look at that industry, it's very much of like there's silos of how to build reliability, how to actually build resilient folks, how to actually make sure that you're training folks properly. Like, I know that the conversations that kind of always come about are like aviation and pilots and the amount of training that they actually have to go through from like testing to staying up to date. But when we talk about software engineering, we rarely do even like a fraction of the training that these folks do. And like to an extent, like our technology can hurt as many people as a crash of one of these like flying devices can. So the fact that like we haven't built this conscious effort in software engineering for every single engineer that wants to become an engineer is an engineer, whether it's ops or SRE as well, like to be conscious that the technology is going to fail and that can actually harm people, whether it's debts or the fact of like really critical systems that are needed we still need to make a little bit more progress in the industry for that.
0: I think that's very well said. And I, I remember when I was at college or university, I did have an ethics course, but it's very much on not copying other people's work, right? Not actually the impact of my system can have on other people. So I think perhaps that's something I should feed back in and say, hey, we need to change this ethics course. Yeah.
1: Well, and I mean, I think even on ethics, like the entire technology industry just needs to sit down and like learn ethics for a year. And we have like various complexities on that from the parts of, the folks that have actually built those systems and like maybe the injustices that have gotten built in, whether it's like racism or just like class separations and things like that. So I think for ethics alone, like that is just like an entire other conversation that I really hope that as we're seeing things go like, The software industry is going to wake up and realize that we need to have more diversity in the folks that are building those systems, whether it's code or putting processes and bringing innovation in, but also the policies that are tied to that to make sure that like human rights are protected and every single individual is not getting unfair treatment due to the technology that they're using.
0: the whole world is a complex system. I think as engineers, we like to make it simple sometimes, but you've always got to look at the externalities, right? You know, the impact, because we can all do incredible things as engineers, but I'm starting to realize my responsibility now of thinking exactly what you said, thinking some of these things through. It's really important to do that. Yeah.
1: I think like that big picture model of like how our software actually affects folks. A lot of folks don't
0: have that. So changing gears a little bit, I was keen to get your insight into how far our organizations and teams should start planning when we want to ensure or verify, I guess, that our systems are resilient for an important date, something like a Cyber Monday or a summer sale.
1: I think that you should be planning three to six months before. I think one month is cutting it way too short. Like considering a lot of dev cycles that take two to three weeks to actually get to production, we're talking about barely having any time to get that code out there. Nonetheless, make sure that your systems are resilient as this code has actually been implemented into your systems. So I think that three to six months is usually the sweet spot. And that also kind of depends on like what type of industry that you're looking at and how much practice you have had. Like the last year, how did it go? But also since then, have you actually been running a lot of these practices, whether it's like running load tests, like capacity testing, whether it's doing more chaos engineering, whether it's implementing like more site reliability engineering practices, like SLOs or updating runbooks, like making sure that you're doing fire drills of your runbooks, adding external capacity, modifying on-call rotations, like all those things if you actually want to prepare, you're going to need those three, six months. There's industries where folks actually prepare like a year out. And we also talk upon in the report where like in older enterprise companies, we see that you end up doing a code freeze in order to actually prepare for that. And that kind of sucks for devs. Like your job kind of stops.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Not good. What do you think on the code freeze? in general, like, is it still viable these days, do you think? Or is it really a bad sort of, or maybe it's like a warning sign that things need to change?
1: I think it's a warning sign that things need to change. I think there comes moments in organizations where doing a code freeze is the only thing you can do, where your team might just like not be ready to understand, hey, you know, we can't be creating changes because we're dealing with too many incidents. We need to figure out what's going on in our systems first, prior to adding more stress onto it or more complexities to it, it could be. So I think in moments, some organizations should be doing that depending on their infrastructure. But for the most part, we see that a lot of the more modern organizations are using devops technologies that they're using like site reliability engineering practices those folks are able to move at a faster rate in like chipping code iterating and of course that also means that things actually might be breaking more but maybe because their teams are trained up they know how to handle those incidents a little bit better
0: so you mentioned about your workshops and training courses are you planning on running them at any online community events coming up soon
1: Yes. So I run training courses every single month. If you go over to gremlin.com boot bootcamps, you'll find an entire landing page. About the workshop offering that Gremlin has. These are free courses where you can come and learn about chaos engineering. So, we rolled out the 101 that is the fundamentals of chaos engineering. You still get to get hands on learning. And then, we're rolling out right now the 201 of chaos engineering, where it's about the automation of chaos engineering and doing continuous chaos engineering in order to make sure that you're not drifting into failure. So, that's something that's gonna be coming up in the next few months. And as far as conferences goes, we're putting together ChaosConf again. So this is going to be the third year that ChaosConf comes about. And it's going to be a virtual conference. Like, there's no choice on that front. So on October six, seven, and 8th, we're going to be having this large chaos engineering community for folks to actually come and talk about different things that pertain to chaos engineering. So we've broken it out that the three days have different tracks. On day one, we're going to talk about reliability comes with practice. Day two, it's all about like completing that DevOps loop. And then on day three, we're talking about the data-driven culture of reliability. So the CFP is actually open. So if any of these themes actually catch your attention, we have the CFP open until August 14. So please go ahead and apply, submit anything that you might be munching on. And if you have any questions, like you can always reach out to the Gremlin team to give any feedback on some ideas that you might be having. And we already have registration open. So if you head on over to chaosconf.io, you'll not only get the CFP link, you can also register and you get to learn that we have two amazing keynote speakers coming in.
0: If folks want to get in contact with you, where's the best place? Are you on Twitter or LinkedIn or where's the best place to follow you?
1: Yeah, you can actually find me on all social media. I have that pretty open to the industry. So I would prefer if you contact me via Twitter. My handle is Anna underscore M underscore Medina. That's probably the best place. And then if you also want to reach out, LinkedIn works really well.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, thanks for your time today, Anna. I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you very much for having me. And as well, thanks for this amazing conversation.